to you to make sure you're smiling. When her friends make the fourth grade pep squad, but she doesn't, she'll look to you for comfort. When she feels misunderstood by her brothers and sisters, she'll look to you for understanding. They'll never stop looking to you. When she walks down the aisle on that magical day, she'll look to you to bring peace to her anxious heart. When he plays his first concert with his new band, he'll look to your face in the crowd. When she makes choices that will break your heart, she'll eventually look to you for forgiveness and restoration. They'll never stop looking to you. And you can never stop. You must never stop looking to God. They don't need you to be perfect. They just need you to be authentic and offer them Jesus anyway. They need you to try your very best. And even if you fail, they need to see you rise up again. They need you to follow hard after Jesus as best you can because they will never stop looking to you. Son, I'm writing these words to you because you are and always have been the legacy I've wanted to leave. It's your moment. It's your chance to leave a legacy of loving Jesus with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. They'll never stop looking to you. And that's the way God created it to be. Those of you who are have the privilege of being able to be called dad, some of you may not have that privilege yet, but for those of you who have, like me, how many of you knew the moment you held that child in your arms for the first time, man, I got this, I, I got, I'm all good now from this point on. Anybody? You're probably like me and you said, Oh my, what in the world do I do now? Well, we're here to encourage you and honor you today, dads, and not just dads, but all of our men. I can't think of a more appropriate song to sing on Father's Day than the one we just sang about the church arising. You know, as men, we're, we're, we're called to be warriors. There's a warrior spirit within us. There's a, there's a soldier spirit that wants to live to fight a, a battle and to fight for a cause. And there's no more worthy cause than the cause of Jesus Christ. So just think again at the words that we sang, O church, arise. Men, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak, those of us in here, can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. What an appropriate call for us this morning. 
So if you have a Bible, I want to ask you to turn to a couple of passages of Scripture. First, Romans chapter 5, and then in just a few moments we're going to look at Titus chapter 2 as we look at the topic of gospel-centered manhood. And on this day that we normally set aside in our nation to honor our earthly fathers, I want to encourage all of us as men here to rethink manhood and what it means to be a man. And let's be honest, most of us learned what it means to be a man by default and probably by accident more than we did intentionality. For many of us, we learned in our culture what it means to be a man in the locker room in high school or with our college buddies. For many of us, we, we didn't we didn't sail into manhood. We, we kind of drifted in and had to try to figure it out along the way. And because of that, manhood is in a state of crisis, especially today in our culture. It's in a crisis that has been developing within our American culture for several decades. But the crisis of manhood that we face today has its roots thousands of years ago in a, in a garden where the first man and the first woman took what was forbidden to them, and at that moment, man fell from his glorious state, created in the image of God, a perfect man living in a perfect world. He fell from that glorious state, and now sin and brokenness and confusion and conflict and toil have been the reigning reality of our lives as men for thousands of years. And that's the reason why, as men, when it comes to our personal lives, things just don't seem to work like they should. We're going to talk about that in just a second, because most of us as men are wired and helping to try to make things work properly. And it's amazing that, that some of us in here have skills to, to help a car work properly. Some of us in here have skills to help a computer system work properly. But when it comes to figuring out what we are supposed to do and how we are to work properly. For many of us, it just doesn't seem like we have the tools that are necessary. And because we live in a world of sin and brokenness and confusion and conflict and chaos, we have a lot of confusion about what it means to be men. And while that state of brokenness has been the reigning reality of every man since Adam... The brokenness and the chaos that we experience has reached new lows in our world in recent decades. You see, at one time, men lived with a sense of nobility. They lived with a sense of calling. And men were called to give their lives to a higher purpose. At one time, even in our culture, being a man was defined by characteristics such as sacrifice, honor, integrity, courage, and industriousness. This is what it meant to be a man. And men who lived like this were celebrated. Knights were honored for their bravery. Soldiers were celebrated for their sacrifice and courage on the battlefield. But today, men with the, live with a sense of weightlessness. We don't hear those values being celebrated like we used to. And we don't hear values like integrity and honor championed much anymore. Our most successful political and cultural leaders are often men 
who lack moral fiber and character. And each and every day it seems like we live in the light of another scandal of corruption, embezzlement, sexual promiscuity or fraud. And while heroes of the past generations were celebrated for charging the beaches at Normandy, today celebrities are music moguls who push filth, movie stars who celebrate decadence, and sports stars who can dunk a basketball or throw a football. These are the heroes that we champion in our culture today. Which leaves us with this nagging question that I think all of us wrestle with regularly. I know I do. And that question is, what does it mean to be a man in today's world? What does it mean to be a man in a world that's marked by a time of gender confusion and gender reassignment? What does it mean to be a man in a world where men have slowly become neutered of any sense of genuine manhood? In many ways, today's younger men are spending their days in an expanded state of adolescence and delaying responsibility for as long as possible. And while they may be rightly criticized for that, and while many of us look down at the younger men and say they need to be more responsible, let's be real honest, many of today's younger men live in a state of expanded adolescence because they lack strong role models of manhood. Because many of today's middle-aged and emerging older adult men have spent years floating adrift on a sea of manhood without a sail, not giving a picture of what it means to be a man that God has called them to be. So why would today's younger men know what it means to be a man? Because many of us have failed in setting the picture for them. As men, we need a noble cause. We need a higher purpose in life than just living for the moment We need a masculinity that is grounded in the Word of God and not in the shifting sands of cultural approval. And more than ever before, we need men who have a manhood that is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to look to God's Word and to study God's story of redemption to see the story of how manhood can be redeemed from the pit of sin and selfishness and lifted to a higher plane that God intended. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to every challenge in this world, including the challenge of manhood. And I would challenge you that any manhood that falls short of the biblical mandate found in God's word and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, any definition of manhood that doesn't originate from this book will be incomplete and lacking no matter how many awards someone wins and no matter how many deeds they accomplish. So how do we rescue and recover a a definition of gospel-centered manhood? Because as I said earlier, my goal today is not to beat up on any man in this place for our spiritual failures. My goal is to help us all admit that, that many of us feel like we don't have the tools and to understand that our spiritual failures are grounded in the nature of sin and brokenness which we have inherited in our spiritual state, that we are all in the same boat. We are all not what we know God wants us to be, but praise be to God, where sin reigns, grace reigns all the more. 
And praise be to God that He doesn't leave it to us to fix our manhood problem, but instead He has sent us the ultimate man in the person of Jesus Christ, who has secured for us our redemption and who stands for us as the model of biblical manhood. Praise be to God, God doesn't say to you and me, I know you don't have the tools what it ta- to, have to do what it takes, so just go out and figure it out yourself. Instead, He sent us a Savior, a Rescuer, a Deliverer, a Champion, as we sang about a second ago. And so the key truth that I want us to understand is simply this. It's in your notes. As we live as men fully surrendered to Jesus Christ and to His purposes... As we do, we can discover, experience, and celebrate the life that you and I were created for. Let me say that again. Men, as we live as men fully surrendered to Jesus Christ and His purposes, then and only then can we discover, experience, and celebrate the life that we were created for. And to do this, we need to look at a couple of passages of Scripture. One of them we looked at a few weeks ago on Mother's Day when we looked at the topic of gospel-centered womanhood. It's found in Titus chapter 2. But before we go there, I want us to look at Romans chapter 5 and see what Paul has to say about the source and the solution to fallen manhood. Now, the passage in Romans chapter 5 doesn't deal with being men. It deals with the spiritual state of all humankind, but it explains to us where manhood has gone wrong and how manhood can get back on track. And so with that in mind, I want us to see what I call gospel-centered manhood redeemed. What does gospel-centered manhood redeemed look like? We see that in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, and then in verses 18 through 21, Paul writing to the church at Rome says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin came through the world through one man, that man was Adam, and because Adam's sin, death came through his sin, and death spread to all men because all have sinned. Paul tells us in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Skip down to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Most men that I know like to tinker with things. I'm not a, a really good handyman around the house. That's been proven over and over and over again. But even with that, I like to at least try to figure it out myself before I admit to my failures and actually go and hire somebody else to do it. I believe that's part of the nature of what it means to be made in the image of God because our God is a glorious creator. And Genesis 1 tells us how God spoke and brought all things into existence. And when you look out over creation, matter of fact, Romans 1 talks about that the creation is is what really leads people to understand the reality of who God is. 
We look out over the glory of this creation, we see a, a beautiful, creative God. And I think that's embedded in part of what it means to be in the image of God, especially for men, is that men like to tinker and, and fix things, that men have a creative spirit within them. And so some men are, are really good at creating art. Others are, are really good at taking raw materials and recreating stuff such as tables or bookshelves or swings. And some people don't have the knack for creating those tangible things, but they, they have a knack for creating systems, for designing computer programs or aligning business systems. They can, they can create. That's, that's part of the spirit that God has given us. And as, as men who are often called to tinker with broken stuff and broken systems, when we do, whenever as men we are faced with a challenge, we are often faced with two questions. And those two questions are this, what went wrong and what is the best way to fix it? As men, when we come to a, to a challenge to try to fix what went wrong, what is the best way to fix it? David was telling us this morning, he was mowing yards Friday and both of his lawnmowers went out. And he said, what went wrong and the best way to fix it is to take it to the lawnmower shop and have it be fixed. Because he knew he didn't have the capacity to do that. But as men, that's what we do. What went wrong? And what is the best way to fix it? So how do we apply that to the issue of manhood? Because we can all fundamentally agree that certainly what we see paraded in our culture and often what seems to be happening within our own daily lives is not the way that manhood was supposed to be. What we see as men in our world today is not surely what it's supposed to be. So what went wrong? Romans chapter 5 tells us that. Because he tells us in verse 12, through Adam we see the destruction of biblical manhood. We see the destruction of biblical manhood. Verse 12 tells us that sin entered through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 tells us what went wrong. And what Paul is establishing here is the universal sinfulness of mankind inherited through our first father Adam. As the first man created, Adam was our representative before a holy, righteous God. He was created as a perfect man in a perfect world that perfectly displayed the glory of God. And Adam enjoyed intimate, personal, face-to-face, -face, daily fellowship with God Almighty. He was a perfect man living in a perfect world, enjoying a perfect relationship with Him. He was not only created by God, but he was also given the task to steward and subdue God's creation. He was given the task of work. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that he was given the task to work and keep the garden. And that, that task had a nobility to it. It wasn't a burdensome toil. It was a glorious expression of what it meant to be a man. You see, work in itself is not the problem. The problem is the labor and the toil that often accompanies our work. But as men, we are wired to be doing something. We're wired to be working. That's why many of us can't sit still for long periods of time. We get involved in hobbies to create something. We, we go out and work in the, in the lawn and the landscaping because we're wired from our father Adam to work and keep what God has given us. 
This is what manhood was created for, to live in fellowship with God and to work to bring glory to God and enjoy all that God is and all that God has created. But Genesis chapter 3 tells us where creation and mankind went awry. God had given Adam one command, and by now you probably know what that command is. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you eat of it, you will die. God warned Adam that if he ever ate of that tree, perfect life as he knew it would be over, that death would enter his life. And it was Adam's job to explain that command to his wife Eve and to ensure as her spiritual leader that God had created him to be, that she obeyed that commandment. But you know, if you know Genesis chapter 3, that Adam and Eve failed. The serpent came to tempt Eve, and instead of being the noble, active, godly protector that Adam was created to be, Adam was passive. He didn't stand in the gap for his family. He didn't live out the integrity that God had created him for. And he passively watched as Eve was tempted and ate of the fruit and then passively agreed to take some himself. And from that moment, biblical manhood was in crisis and has been ever since. Instead of being the noble spiritual leaders that God has created us to be and called us to be, all of us have taken the same path as Adam. We have bypassed spiritual nobility to pursue personal pleasure. We have aspired to position of spiritual authority in place of God instead of submitting to God's loving and gracious rule. While we can easily look back and condemn Adam for what he's done, the reality of it is, men, that every single one of us have done exactly the same thing that Adam did. We have bypassed everything that God has called us to be to pursue our own personal pleasure and to establish ourselves as the authority of our life. And we have jumped headlong into a cesspool of sin and attempted to cover our shame and our nakedness with the garments of our own personal goodness and work. That's why Paul says in verse 18, As one trespass led to condemnation by all men, and by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Sin is the reigning reality of our lives And sin results in death, destruction, chaos, and brokenness. Sin never adds anything of value anywhere to anyone. It always destroys, breaks, and saps the life out of us. That's the bad news. You and I are fully aware of the bad news. But what is the good news? Well, the good news is this. In Jesus, we see the restoration of biblical manhood. In Adam, we see the destruction of biblical manhood... We see what went wrong, but in Jesus we get the answer to the second question, which is what's the best way to fix it? And you see, the problem with manhood, as the gospel explains to us, as Paul explains to us in Romans chapter 5 here, the problem with manhood isn't something that exists outside of us. You see, what happens in our culture, and this is what happened with Adam when he fell, is immediately when God came to Adam to ask Adam what happened. What have you done? Do you remember what Adam's response was? Adam's response was, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. What is that? That's blame shifting, right? We have this tendency to blame shift. And as men, when we look at at what's going on in our families, what's going on in our lives, what's going on with us, our tendency is is to criticize the culture around us. Well, this decadent world, all these things, it was the way I was raised. 
It was the dad that I had growing up. It was the mom that I had growing up that, that made me this way. But here's what the gospel tells us. The problem with manhood is not something that exists outside of us. It isn't the broken systems and stuff in this world that causes us to sin. It's our sin that brings the broken systems and stuff that we have in this world. Everything that's broken in this world is a result of our own sinful pursuit, just like Adam. So it's not the broken systems that cause us to sin. It's our sin that creates those broken systems within us in the first place. The problem is not outside you and me. The problem is inside you and me, which is the reason why we can't fix our sin problem with our own hard work. And that's the hardest thing for most men to hear. You can't fix your sin problem yourself. And that's hard for us because most men are problem solvers. But the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't call you and me to be the problem solvers. He sent the solution to our sin problem in Jesus Christ. And where Adam failed, Jesus perfectly obeyed each and every time. As our first representative, Adam created our sin problem. But as our final representative, Jesus answered our sin problem for us. That's why I look again at verse 18. It says, so as one act of righteousness leads to death, as one man's trespass leads to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There it is, the restoration of biblical manhood. And notice how it says later on in verse 19, as by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What we are completely impotent to do in our own strength and resources, Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. You see, men, let me tell you, the problem isn't ours to fix. The solution is ours to embrace. The problem isn't ours to fix. The solution is ours to embrace. The gospel says that everything that you need to be made right with God, Jesus Christ has already done it for you. All you need to do is embrace Him. Which is why we said a second ago, it says we fully surrender to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we will discover and celebrate the manhood that we were created for. You see, we are now made righteous before God, not by our own effort, but by the one who came as our substitute and fully accomplished all righteousness on our behalf. And we don't work now to earn God's favor as men. We rest and trust in God's favor that was fully earned for us. And this aspect of grace is really hard, especially for men, because we have been trained to earn our own way. But if you seek to live your spiritual life with God, trying to earn His favor through your own goodness, you will not only find endless frustration, but you will also find a works-based pride that will not save anybody. The essence of the gospel doesn't begin with trying harder. The essence of the gospel begins with laying down our arms and fully surrendering to Jesus Christ. Now, turn to Titus chapter 2 for just a second, because we see not only the redemption of gospel-centered manhood, but in Titus chapter 2, we're going to see the practice of gospel-centered manhood. We're going to see gospel-centered manhood in practice. In Titus chapter 2, we're going to see several verses, verse 2, verse 6, and verses 11 through 14. Paul's giving instructions in Titus chapter 2 to people in the church. And he, he categorizes four groups. Older men, 
older women, younger women, younger men. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the older women and the younger women. Today, we're going to look at the man side of it. So let's start in verse 1. It's not on your screen, but Paul says to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's the gospel. As a result, number two, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith and love, and in steadfastness. Verse 6, likewise urge that the younger men to be self-controlled. Again, self-controlled, dignified. These are instructions to these men. And then look at verses 11 through 14. As, as Paul gives these instructions, he then leads Titus to remember the gospel and the power of the gospel. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, men and women, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own pleasure, possession who are zealous for good works. Here's what Paul is doing here in Titus chapter 2. You see he gives some imperative commands in verses 2 and 6. He says that older men are to be sober-minded, to be dignified, to be self-controlled, to be sound in the faith and in love and in steadfastness. Those are imperative commands. Men, this is who you are to be. Verse 6 in, in younger men, younger men, you are to be self-controlled. Those are called imperative statements in the Bible. But every time you see an imperative command in the Bible, that's not God saying you need to try harder because every imperative is undergirded by an indicative in Scripture. Every command in the Bible is undergirded by a statement of reality, which is what he says in verses 11 and 12. He doesn't just say, men, go out there and be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith. But he reminds us in verse 11 that all of this comes from the grace of God. That it's the grace of God, it's the gospel that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And it's the gospel that enables us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And so with that in mind, let's talk about the practice of gospel-centered manhood. You see, he says in verse 12 that the gospel not only brings salvation, but the Bible also says that the gospel trains us. Let's talk about training for a second. What is, the, what is the purpose of training? The purpose of training is to educate you and discipline and develop in you some sort of discipline that you currently lack or are insufficient in. So men, when you took a job, more than likely you had to go through a period of training. You took a job and you didn't know how to do adequately the job that you were called to do. And as a result, they put you in a training program in order to educate you and to develop in you the discipline to do the job that you were called to do. Centuries ago, when someone aspired to be a knight, he was put in a training program where he would be apprenticed to another knight. That knight would begin as a squire who was put in service of the knight. And he was called to carry the knight's armor. And he would observe the knight's action. And he would learn the knight's values. And as a result of, of carrying that armor and being apprenticed to that knight, he would learn what it means to be a noble man. And he would later on become a knight. He would go through training. When someone wanted to learn a trade, such as a blacksmith or a carpenter, he didn't just go out and get a bunch of tools and start trying to build tables. He would be apprenticed to someone who learned that, who knew that trade. That is training. In the same way, we go to a gym. 
And when we go to a gym and we stare at the weight machines and the treadmills and we try to run up there and run on the treadmill a little bit and do this and do that, but the reality of it is that for most of us, if we ever go to the gym, we fail more than we succeed. You know why? Because we need somebody who can look at our bodies and look at what's going on and say, this is the best way to use this machine to be trained to get the maximum amount of results. And so the Bible tells us that the grace of God displayed in the gospel not only saves us, but it trains us. And what this means is that you and I need the gospel not only for our salvation, but for our daily development as disciples of Jesus. Each and every day, Christians, we need to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us and who we are apart from him. And each and every day, Christian, you need to be reminded that through Jesus, you are no longer called sinners and rebels and outcasts, but you are called forgiven, redeemed, and beloved. This is why the grace of God trains us. The gospel trains us. And so I want to give you five practices of biblical manhood. Five things, five practical practices, guys, that I want to call you today according to Titus chapter 2. To pursue biblical manhood, number one, you need to resolve to be a man of God's word. You need to resolve to be a man of God's word. Titus chapter 2 says that older men in the church are to be sober-minded, dignified, and sound in the faith. What does that mean? This means that as men who have been transformed by the gospel, we need to be men who are continually being formed by God's word. As men who have been transformed by the gospel, we need to understand that we are also men who are continually formed by God's word. To be sober-minded means that we think about issues with a sobriety that is grounded in God's word and God's will. You see, sober-mindedness doesn't just fire off our personal opinions that are uninformed spiritually. We don't just allow ourselves to speak to issues from the informing of Fox News and social media. That's not being sober-minded. Being sober-minded is not looking at, at your Facebook feed and going, I don't know what's wrong with this world. I'll tell you what I think. Let me be real honest with you. I really don't give a rip what you think. I don't give a rip what you think is wrong with this world. What I want to know is what God says is wrong with this world. And I don't want to know what you would do. I want to know what God would do. And if we're ever going to be the men that God calls us to be, we need to be sober mind and we need to think critically about God and the gospel and what God is doing in the world and through our lives. And we need to resolve to be a man of God's word and be careful about the words that we allow to come out of our mouth. We need to be sound in the faith, Paul says, which means we need to know what the gospel is. Because if the gospel is the answer to the world's problems, then what we need are men who have a gospel-centered approach to this world. We need to know what the Christian faith is, and we need to know how to speak God's word into a world that is starving to hear a word from God. And we cannot stay sober-minded and sound in the faith unless we are a man of the word who resolves to study and know the word of God. The reason why we have the problems in our culture today is because we have far too many people that are trying to address problems of brokenness and chaos and destruction from solutions that have nothing to do with God's Word. If you and I want to be the men that God has called us to be, it starts with resolving to be a man of God's Word. 
It starts with studying God's Word personally. It starts with putting yourself in a position with other men to study God's Word with other guys, to disciple one another. But you need to resolve to be a man of God's Word. Number two, you need to rest in the sufficiency of God's grace. You need to rest in the sufficiency of God's grace. Look again at verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Where does all of that begin? Where does all of that that says we are trained to renounce ungodliness, and trained to renounce our worldly passions, and and, and trained to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Where does all that training come from? It comes from verse 11, the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared. The good news has been proclaimed. Jesus Christ has done it all, people. We live in the goodness of the grace of Jesus Christ who has accomplished everything on our behalf. The grace of God has appeared. What people were longing for for thousands and thousands and thousands of centuries has now become true. The gospel is here. And we need to rest in the sufficiency of grace. We are no longer called to live a life that is bound to the law in order to try and earn God's favor. Instead, we can rest in the grace of Jesus Christ that has fully earned God's favor on our behalf. And as men, most of us have a real hard time with grace because we are taught that we should make our own path and forge our own way. We are taught that you don't get anything for free in this world, right? And the idea of unmerited favor makes us uncomfortable. But if you know the gospel, you know that the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient. That the grace of Jesus Christ is unmerited favor bestowed to us simply because we believe in Him. Nothing else is needed from you and me to be right. Let me draw you back to a little bit of history. Do you remember what Jesus' final words on the cross were? Do you remember? Right before he died, Jesus said the three greatest words in all of Scripture. It is what? Finished. It's done. As men, we love to see the finished product, don't we? When, when we finish whatever it is we're working on, that swing, that, that car that we were restoring... Come out here, I want you to see it. I want, you want us, everybody to see the finished product. We love that moment when we can admire our handiwork, when we can call our friends over to see it. And in the same way, you and I can look to the cross of Jesus Christ and we can see the finished work of Christ there. Nothing else needs to be done. Salvation has been accomplished perfect, full, and free. And all you need to do is receive what Jesus has done for you and rest in the sufficiency of His grace. There's nothing else needed from you. Resolve to be a man of God's Word. Rest in the sufficiency of God's grace. Number three, renounce ungodliness. Renounce ungodliness. He says this, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And this is where the rubber meets the road and so many men in the church fail. Because most of us have come to a point where we have heard and believed the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross, but we have not trusted in God's grace enough to renounce our former ways. We've trusted that Jesus died for us, but we've only believed half of the gospel. Because the gospel isn't just believe that Jesus died and you'll go to heaven. James says even the demons believe that. 
but that the grace of God causes us to do something. When we see the grace of God, it causes us, in light of seeing Jesus Christ crucified on the cross on our behalf, it causes us to renounce ungodliness. The word renounce means to completely disassociate ourselves from. It means complete and total separation. It means that as men, ungodly aspirations and worldly passions are no longer to take precedence in our lives. It means that we proclaim, I don't live in that neighborhood anymore, and so I'm not going back. How do we renounce ungodliness? We do not do it in our own strength and purposes. We do so by training ourselves to resolve to be a man of God's word and to rest in the sufficiency of God's grace and in the gospel to continually keep our eyes focused on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. That's how we renounce ungodliness. I remember, how many of you remember the movie The Passion of the Christ when it came out? You all remember that? It was the one time we were in this real quandary in the church because we've been told all our lives we couldn't go see a rated R movie and then all of a sudden there was a rated R movie that everybody wanted to go see. Remember that? And I remember walking in there the opening night with, with a, one of my students. He and I were going to see the movie because he wanted to go. And I was going to go preview it before I recommended it to my students and families. And I remember he went with me and we, we got to the end of that movie where Jesus had been crucified. And, and there was this, this quietness that just pervade the room, if you remember that. I mean, when the, when the credits came up and the lights came on, there was, there was no talking. It was just a somberness. And I remember me and this guy named Jason, we walked out to my truck. We didn't say a word to each other until we got out to the truck. We got in the truck and we turned on the car and we buckled our seatbelts. And I just looked at him and he looked at me. And the only thing I could say was, I never want to sin again. Now, I knew that I would. But looking and seeing what Jesus had done on the cross on my behalf in such a visible, powerful way created within me this thing, I never want to do one more thing that costs Jesus that. That's renouncing ungodliness. Number four, resolve to be spiritually disciplined. Resolve to be spiritually disciplined. He says not only are we to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It's interesting that Paul specifically points out to both younger men and older men the need to be self-controlled. Why is that? Because most of us as men are still boys at heart. Most of us as men still operate like wild stallions. Most men I know are not bad guys. Most men I know are not evil guys. They're simply men who lack spiritual discipline in their lives. And so resolve yourself to be a man of spiritual discipline. Resolve yourself to be the kind of man who lives self-controlled, who lives with a sense of uprightness and godliness. And you start with a small Bible reading plan that puts you in God's Word daily. And before you head out to tackle the problems of the day, take a few moments to spend time in God's Word and prayer. Ask God to help you to commit to using the conversations that God places in your life to share the, your faith in Christ or to share the gospel. Instead of trying to tackle a problem that everybody's trying to address in our culture by what Fox News says, start by tackling it by what God's Word says. Spiritual discipline develops in us the ability to live self-controlled lives, to practice the art of saying no to ourselves 
and the desire to feed our sinful flesh. And self-discipline determines that when people encounter us, they will find men who live for the glory and honor of God. And then finally, let me give you this challenge. To pursue being a man of God, then you and I need to commit to risk living our lives for an eternal reward. Risk living our lives for the eternal reward. We all love to be rewarded. I remember the first time I hit a home run in, in, in Little League, and it wasn't one that went over the fence. It was actually like a single with a three-base error, but in our world it was a home run. You know what I'm talking about? And I remember sliding across, and my dad giving me a high five, and where we were at, if you hit a home run, you got a, a, a coupon for a free hamburger from Sonic. I, I treasured that like it was the greatest prize ever. We all want to live for some sense of reward. And verse 13 tells us that we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our reward. It means that men of God are men who live with an eternal perspective. Gospel-centered men know that this life is not all there is. Gospel-centered men inherently know that no matter how bad things may seem in this world, we have a Savior who is coming again, who one day will set all things right. And we live our lives between now and then for His reward. Gospel-centered men understand that the phrase, whoever dies with the most toys wins, is a lie. And gospel-centered men know that it is Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 6, that we are not to store up treasures on earth that will turn to rust and dust, but to measure our lives by eternal rewards. Someone wisely said to me 20 years ago that the only two things you will take to heaven are your faith in Christ and the people that you influenced for Jesus. That's what it means to live for an eternal reward. Because if eternity is what really matters then we need to live our lives with eternity in constant view and to live our lives for eternal reward. Jesus said, what does it gain a man to gain everything and yet lose his soul? Men, what are you living for right now that will live on into eternity? Who are you investing your life in with the gospel? And maybe God is calling you and I to quit investing our lives in earthly toys and instead begin to live our lives sharing the gospel in places where people near, need to hear the good news. When I think about risking our life for the eternal reward, I think about a man named Royce, a friend that I have come to know in the last four or five years. Royce is in his 70s now. He spent most of his life in Birmingham building a very successful company. And he had all of the measures and symbols of success. A successful company, a comfortable retirement, and a nice house in the middle of one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Birmingham. And yet, as Royce and his wife Sandra began to enter into their golden years of retirement, as he entered into that time that many of us think now it's time to enjoy the labors of our years of working, instead Royce and Sandra said, you know what, we want to spend our golden years investing in the kingdom of God. And so soon after they retired, they, they bought a house in Uganda and they began to go over there for multiple times throughout the year, spending two to three months at a time. They did that for several years with our organization, Four Corners Ministries. And then three years ago, they, Royce told us at a board meeting that he and his wife had been called by God to sell their home, a home that many of us would, would take with great envy, 
to sell their home and to sell everything they had and to spend the next two years of their life in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. So in their 70s, they boarded a plane, sold everything of, of, of earthly value here, and they spent the last two and a half years in Kuala Lumpur sharing the gospel with Muslims and Buddhists and people in one of the most unreached parts of the world. Got to see him a few months ago. He told us some incredible stories about what God has done through some gospel conversations they've been able to have over the last couple of years. That, my friends, is risking your life for the eternal reward. Because you see, if eternity is what really matters, then you and I should live with eternity in constant view, and we should risk living our lives for the eternal reward. You see, men, the life that you and I were created for will only come as you pursue a manhood that is grounded in the gospel and God's word. And biblical manhood doesn't begin with a call to build a tower to your greatness and the greatness of your name. But biblical manhood begins with a personal surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so before we leave this morning, in just a moment, we're going to have a, an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps today... You feel like God has called you up to something higher, to a more noble purpose, to begin to, to set aside defining your life by the metrics of this world and instead to define your life by being a man of God. That begins by surrendering your heart and life to Him. Perhaps you're here today and you've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ to save you. You just keep on kind of trying to do this Christian thing yourself by being a good guy and making good choices and going to church and all those things are great, but none of those things save you. The only thing that saves you is a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So in just a moment as we sing this song, we're going to give you an opportunity to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe you just need to begin today by coming down here and saying, Pastor Matt, I need to give my life to Christ. I need to trust in what he's done for me so that I can be the man that he's called us to be. So in just a moment, if that's you, we want to give you the opportunity to respond to that. Maybe you need to make some other decision this morning. Maybe you need to say, you know what, I've been investing my life in all the wrong stuff, and I just want to, I want to drive a stake in the ground, and I want to start being the kind of man who lives my life for an eternal reward. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Whatever it is God's called you to do, in just a moment as we sing, we invite you to respond. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that while we are imperfect men, we are loved by a perfect heavenly Father. And we thank you that in every single place that we fall short, we have a Father who continually fills in the gap on our behalf. So Father, I pray you would call men today to a, to a higher, more noble purpose in following you. Whatever man may be struggling right now with their personal relationship with you, with where they stand with you, Father, I pray you would give them the faith to believe, and I pray you would give them the courage to respond to whatever it is you've called them to do. God, make us into the gospel-centered men that you've called us to be. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, respond as the Lord Jesus leads you.